From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. As we were putting the final touches on our tribute to Wes Craven, I received shocking and devastating news that we had lost Toby Hooper. I first met Toby on the set of Poltergeist, where I was working as a publicist. He knew me from my Z Channel interview show, and we hit it off right then and there. It was the beginning of decades of friendship. Toby was a Texas gentleman, intensely creative yet quietly vulnerable. To meet him was to love him. Our professional paths crossed often and happily. He directed an episode of Amazing Stories when I was story editor there. We directed back-to-back episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. I suggested to Steven Spielberg that he do one of the segments on The Others, a series I was a producer on, and he did one of the best of all of them. When Masters of Horror happened, he was one of the first masters I approached to do the show, and the two films he did there were twisted and, well, masterful. I interviewed him on the original TV version of Postmortem a few years back, and you can watch it in full at MickGarrisInterviews.com. We had actually set a date to do this podcast, but he had to cancel at the last minute because he was getting ready to go to a European film festival at which he had a great time. As an artist and as a human being, Toby was questing, kind, and I know this is a strange choice of words for a man known mostly for visceral cinematic terror, incredibly sweet. For Toby Hooper, the filmmaker and the friend, I love you and I miss you, man. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally. To the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. True originals in the world of horror filmmaking are rare. Once in a great while, a cinema storyteller creates something so unique and iconic that it becomes a permanent part of our collective fear. Sure, there are franchises, strings of sequels that are familiar and ubiquitous, but those are really all about creating a brand and profits, however fleeting. But imagine creating Frankenstein's monster, Count Dracula, Norman Bates, the Phantom of the Opera. Perhaps no horror villain has captured the imagination of the modern horror audience like Freddy Krueger, the dagger-fingered man of your dreams from the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Robert Englund brought that character indelibly to life, and it is his performance that haunts us. But the creator of that character, the writer and director of the Nightmare films, Wes Craven, crafted that character and that world. If Freddy and the Nightmare movies were all that Wes had contributed to our genre, 
he would be revered forever. But he was no one-trick pony. Though known mostly for Freddy, as George Romero was known mostly for his Living Dead movies, Wes had many more tricks up his sleeve. Movies like The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes and Red Eye, TV series like Nightmare Cafe and Twilight Zone episodes, he was even an accomplished novelist. Two years ago, on the date this podcast is going out, we lost a brilliant, intelligent, kind, and thoughtful master of horror. Those who know him personally as well as those who only know him through his work, miss him a lot. We're offering up a tribute to Wes by playing an interview we did a few years ago for the Postmortem TV show, as well as talking with Robert Englund, the face of Freddy, and much more about this remarkable man. You're listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. I don't even have any questions prepared for you because I just want to have a conversation. And I think we know each other well enough. To... <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you also did our uh, Postmortem TV show, too. Yeah. The only non-director. That's well, But you, you are a director. <laughs> but uh, we were talking about your acting career. But tell me about the first time you met with Wes. It was just the classic uh, actor's audition uh, somewhere, I think, in North Hollywood on a hot, smoggy day. And I remember, uh, I, I think somewhere in my in my deep, dark uh, subconscious, uh, I wanted to kind of uh, risk the challenge of doing a makeup. You know, I was a theater actor for many years, and you're required by equity the actors union to do your own makeup and I'd, I'd taken makeup classes and as a child i was fascinated with my, my uh, one of my my godfather had a coffee table book uh, on the history of hollywood and there was a section on the man of a thousand faces on mm -hmm. lon shaney with little postage stamp photos of all of the different makeups he, he wore including one with a, a boiled placentia from an egg that he used, uh, like a contact lens oh, over for his the eyes. On the eyes. Yes, yeah. to make his eyes look pale and, and, and blind, uh, for a film, Zanzibar, I think it was. But I was so fascinated yeah, West with of that. Zanzibar. West of yeah. Zanzibar. But I buried all of that, Mick, uh, and became a theater snob and a classically <laughs> trained actor and then a yeah. movie actor, you know, and, and all of this. But I think that that was one of the reasons that brought me to West, that, that, that 14 year old boy was still alive in me. And I think also Wes had always kept that 14 year old boy alive in him. And that may be why we had a kind of simpatico beyond how erudite Wes was and, 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 and just brilliant and kind. Uh, you know, that phrase, uh, uh, uh you're a, a gentleman and a scholar. That was Wes. <laughs> that right? was Wes, yeah. Well, people think of the horror genre as kind of a gutter genre. But in the case of someone like Wes, who had a lot to say, this was a guy who had brought up in a very repressed religious household. And he exploded against that with The Last House on the Left, Hills Have Eyes. But Nightmare on Elm Street went even more deeply into the subconscious and I think found something universal in all of us. And the original movie, Freddy Krueger, is a very, very dark and mysterious character. He's not given to one-liners or quips as he did later on. And when he has a couple, I mean, Wes, yeah. Wes gave him a personality, but Wes kept it under, because Wes was in the editing room on that. Wes would not allow the one-liners or the jokes to be the sort of rim shot at the end of each scene, which mm -hmm. became more and more the habit of the later sequels. What was your impression of Wes, and and what did you discuss in that first audition about who Freddy Krueger was? 
I think Wes understood that I understood what he was going for. Very well spoken, and he sort of laid it all out, this kind of story, this kind of dark fairy tale that he hoped to achieve, uh, this, this, this dark cautionary tale uh, with some symbolism about America in it. Uh, I, I, as I tell people, Elm Street is the street our, our wonderful president was slain on in Dallas, and Elm Street, there is, as Freddie says, every town has an Elm Street in America. It's like Broadway or Main Street, but there's also an Elm Street in the readers that my generation learned to read from in the the now bygone great public schools of the U.S. Um, we read the Dick and Jane stories and learn mm-hmm. to read. Dick and Jane and their cat Puff and their dog Spot and father and mother lived on Elm Street as well. So it's in this sort of collective consciousness of Americans. And Wes was playing with that a little bit. This sort of, you know, if you look closely at all of the nightmare movies, the parents, uh, uh, <laughs> are not the best people <laughs> in the world. And it's sort of loss of innocence. Right. And, stuff. and Wes was telling me all this in so many words and giving me a little bit of backstory about a uh, a bully named Kruger from when he was young and the story about he and his brother seeing this, uh, this I'll use the politically incorrect word, hobo or bum outside their window who may or may not have inspired Freddie, but he had grime on him as opposed to Burns, but he had a, a, a hat not unlike Freddy's, and maybe he had a, an old ratty sweater on. I'm not sure when Wes came up with a sweater, but the the homeless man, the bum, the hobo, played a staring game with young Wes when he was left right. at home with his brother, and that never left his his memory. And and he incorporated the bully and that 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 man that he and his brother had seen on the street, and that became the source for Freddy Krueger. But he, I think, he told me once. He kept the name Kruger also because it's Germanic, and that was a little bit of Wes's academic uh, nod, uh, uh, tip of the hat to uh, the Brothers Grimm. Ah, <laughs> great. Well, what was your Elm Street? What was your childhood like? I, I had a great California upbringing, orange groves, you know, and and fights with lemons. You know how badly can you get hurt, you know, with a with a with a ripe lemon and uh, uh, and the beach. And it was pretty golden. And I also had this fascination with films. I mean, mowing lawns for the Saturday matinee and, and then having to convince somebody's mom to drive you to the Saturday matinee. And, and I was a valley boy and it was always somewhere in Studio City or Sherman Oaks. You know, Me too. I was raised yeah. in the valley in L.A. as well. So we have very – drive-in theaters were a very important part of my upbringing because I was one of four kids originally. And we couldn't afford to go to the movie theater indoors, but with a 57 Chevy station wagon, that's where I yes. saw Psycho. You wish you that's had that car I, still, yeah. don't you? <laughs> I do indeed. <laughs> but, well, I saw Psycho at the drive-in too. Yeah. yeah. And I remember you could literally hear, hear people inside their cars screaming. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was the drive-in where they shot Targets, the oh, Reseda drive The Reseda. Yeah. Gosh, you know, I, this that? is so funny. I either saw it at the Reseda the Canoga Park or the Sepulveda Drive-In. It would yeah. have been one of those three. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So were you a popular kid? 
I was, you know, we had all we, we had the first pool. So I, uh, to this day, I don't know whether it was my sparkling personality or whether <laughs> yeah. it was the, you know, the 20 by 40 foot swimming pool that With my the father put water. in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I'm never sure what it was, but yeah, there were always, I mean, it was, can, you know, can Robbie come out and play, you know, and, uh, and I, and I had great, friends, you know, that I still remember, then we would go exploring. And of course, this is the day before Stranger Danger and before paranoid uh, helicopter parents put all of that angst on their children. And and so at some point close to dusk, you know, parents would call your name or whistle a code for you and uh, you would leave your friend's house or you would have a sleepover at a friend's house and bicycles would come you know, home to roost, uh, in their own, f- in the driveways. And all the dads were home by five o'clock in the evening. So you had to behave yourself. But, uh, you know, you were always playing baseball or you were always building a fort or you yeah. were building a tree house or you were in the orange groves or you were learning how to, you know, cannonball or do a one yeah. and a half gainer <laughs> off somebody's wall into the swimming pool. It or in a- the wash collecting <laughs> tadpoles. It in was, the San Fernando oh, the Valley. tadpoles yeah. in, uh, in the big pickle jars. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Aliso Creek. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it was this kind of wonderful time. I mean, I actually, my first kind of, uh, strange grown up moment was, uh, they, we, we found some magazines in, in, you know, up in the, in the foothills and we thought they were going to be dirty magazines, right? And we were all sitting in our fort and looking at them and somebody had thrown out magazines with photos of the Holocaust. Oh my God. And here we were sitting around and, you know, and I remember, kind of growing up that afternoon with those boys being shocked and these were uncensored photographs uh of the concentration camps and up uh, and somebody had thrown them out but i mean that was like the strange and there were no adults to censor that and we kind of had to figure that out for ourselves and this was a time in the 1950s when a lot of young boys we were kind of obsessed with with war movies i'll be honest you know even though my generation were the ones that fought the draft and, 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 and protested against Vietnam. We were sort of gung ho about war movies back then. And, uh, that sort of stopped us in our tracks with our fascination with that. So that was the first opening to the, a darker world you didn't really experience until then. A darker world and adulthood. Yeah. I, it was almost a one, two punch. I had gone to see a, a, a Western at the Panorama Theater with a bunch of boys for a, uh, a birthday party. And I think it was the man from Rio with Anthony Quinn <laughs> as the old gunslinger who all the young gunslingers are gunning for. And in, we went to the three o'clock matinee and it had changed to the adult movie. And I don't mean adult like we use adult today. Right. I mean the grown-ups movie, the evening fair. And it was the bad seed. Oh, wow. That old Broadway war yeah. horse with Nancy Kelly, Jack Kelly's sister from Maverick, mm-hmm. and the wonderful, fabulous Patty McCormick and Henry Jones as the janitor for the apartment building. But it freaked us out. We couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old. And I, I mean, the, her blonde Teutonic braids mm-hmm. and that opening where she beats the little boy's hands on the end of the dock and leaves the imprint of her tap shoes yeah. because he won the penmanship medal. And that freaked me out. And that kind of arch Broadway writing. Mm-hmm. And it was a leftover black and white film. It was a late black and white film yeah. uh, and a great neurotic performance by Nancy Kelly as the mother in 
that, you know. What'll I give you if you give me a bushel of hugs, a basket of kisses? Yes. That strange dialogue. Yes. But those that, you know, the Holocaust, you know, the Holocaust images and at the age of seven or eight in our fort in an orange grove in the idyllic valley surrounded by cowboy movie stars. Mm. And then, you know, this dark film about a child being evil. Almost the same year, the same summer, really, really rocked little Robbie England's world. Right. Well, you probably worked with, you certainly worked with Wes more than any other actor, I would guess. What was your impression of, what made Wes who he was? What was unique about him to you as a well, filmmaker? Well, first of all, he's, I think he's my first double threat uh, auteur. I mean, he's writer-director. Right. And uh, so this is my first time with someone that, that could fix a line on the set. Uh, mm. By the way, just side note, Wes is the first person I ever saw with a laptop really? uh, on the set of the series Nightmare Cafe, yeah, and could fix everything and, and, and print it out and change a line and make it fit your mouth better. For me, so that was something. That was different. And I'm English-trained, and in England you're taught to serve the writer first, then the director, then yourself. It's a little bit different priority system. They respect the writer more than the director. Then they, then you, then you do whatever the director says. But first and foremost, you're trying to find the truth and, and the sense from the words. And so with Wes, I think he thinks of himself as a writer first too. So I think we really got along on that level and our radars kind of matched up, uh, with dialogue. But it took until the series for Wes and I to really be friends. He was my boss until then. Mm -hmm. And by that time, I was... Nightmare Cafe of the series. Nightmare Cafe, yeah. yeah. And that would have been, that would, that was like 95, I think. And Wes and I finally were like, I don't want to say equals, because I would never consider myself Wes's equal, but we were buddies, finally. And I could ask to change something, and I would do something spontaneously, and I would not, I was not afraid to improvise for Wes anymore, or ask him for changes, and tease him a little more um and i was able to do all that with wes on that on that experience i remember inviting wes and jack holman the actor from heroes over uh, i had the best apartment in vancouver i was right up by stanley park with my big old silly dog and my my lovely wife and uh we would all gather after a long friday shoot or a long, or a, on a saturday sometimes we'd be working on saturdays because it was a pilot as well and we'd all be, we were all over at my house and we were a six pack or two down and they did head wound harry with dana <laughs> dana carvey yeah. that infamous sketch now that's all over youtube i think and uh wes fell off my couch laughing he practically <laughs> wet his pants he'd had a you know he'd had a drink or two and that was wes letting me see him and and letting me see him like like the adolescent wes must have been like just laughing and blubbering uh at that dark humor in that crazy sketch that's really my fondest memory of wes because people always knew or i've always felt uh, and i said it earlier that wes has sort of kept this boy inside of him alive along with the academic along with the brilliant wes along with the wes that grew up in a repressed household along with the wes who was i think only allowed to watch disney movies right. as a child he was always kept Catching up with rock and roll, or and, and music, and and books, and and art. Every time I visited him, up in his lair, Steve McQueen's bachelor pad, <laughs> up in the cliffs of Hollywood Hills. Yeah. Uh, every time I visited him, he had something cool on the coffee table, or some great new piece of music that he was listening to that he was thinking of using as film score or something. And so I think he was always discovering stuff. And that's probably a reaction to that childhood you talked about earlier. 
Well, one of the things I discovered about Wes, it took me a while of knowing him before I discovered his sense of humor. And it wasn't necessarily that I wasn't exposed to it, but maybe I didn't get it. He had a very dry sense of humor that you couldn't tell if he was joking with you for a while. And he wouldn't necessarily let you on into the joke even. And so did you have that experience? I mean, was he sort of scholarly when you met him? And he was. And I don't know what I expected. I think I thought Wes was going to be this sort of goth guy when I, you know, my original impression of Wes was Hills Have Eyes and the Last House on the Left for me were kind of, you know, uh, Ingmar Bergman meets, uh, the Peckinpah of Straw Dogs with a little, <laughs> you know, a little, you know, spice of David Lynch in there too. And, and so I don't know whether I expected Wes to be goth or have earrings or tattoos or what, but then I met this, you know, Wes was looked like, he looked like Don Quixote and Ralph Lauren, you know, <laughs> that's what he was sort of looked like. And he was like kind of impeccably dressed and stylish and, and tall and had the goatee back then, uh, kind of a, and, and he had a bit of a, a young Quixote look, yeah. like some of the drawings of Quixote. Uh, and he, a little bit like Richard Kiley when Richard Kiley did Man of La Mancha. So I was a little taken aback by that, but Wes used to pun. And they say punning is, uh, the provenance of high IQ individuals. Right. Like people that are, that have to play crosswords a lot, uh, because they just have to use that, that mental energy. And Wes was constantly punning, but a lot of his puns were, I want, I won't say they're bad puns, but they were, go they ahead, were, you can say. Well, they were just, they were like a kid, they were like a 14 year old boy's <laughs> puns again, back to the 14 year old boy again. I remember on, on, on Wes Craven's New Nightmare, we were working with, uh, eels. Uh, these white eels, these, I guess they were albino eels. We had wow. an albino, I think anaconda or python as well on this set. There was a sequence and there were supposed to be a lot of them. And so they got these, they could only have one snake, but they got these eels and we were way over, you know, between the wranglers for the reptiles. Uh, we had a kid in the scene with, with working with snakes, uh, Heather and myself, Heather Langenkamp. And, uh, I was in, uh, a, a, a kind of progressive makeup, a rather exaggerated, uh, Freddie makeup in that sequence and it was very tight the set there was flame bars everywhere and we were we were way into uh our meal penalty uh everybody was going to have to get extra payment or something or or, or we were we we uh, like an hour or so oh. no one had had lunch and uh, Wes was getting a little ticked off, and the first AD was scolding him. And I remember Wes saying, if we don't get it on the next take, there's going to be an eel penalty. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the Wes Craven that I know and love, but it's there's also that 14-year-old boy again. <laughs> Definitely that. What was your f- favorite working experience with him? Was it discovering Freddy Krueger the first time, or was it when you became more comfortable as friends and peers? You know, on the original film, Wes left me alone, and uh, which was great, kind of liberating. And also the makeup was kind of liberating. I'd been doing a lot of television just before that, where you had that little voice in your head that says, don't act, don't act, you know, just behave. And with all that makeup on, I was able to change my voice and change the way I move and use some old tricks that I had from the theater. And so Wes kind of left me alone. Uh, I don't remember him telling me much. He had his hands full. You know, he had uh, Johnny Depp 
who, who it, that was Johnny Depp's first film. And he had Heather. It wasn't her first film, but she's in every shot. And he really had to kind of guide her. Uh, and, and Heather will be honest about this too. He gave her a lot of lessons about, cause she was in a lot of close-ups and how to breathe in a close-up and how to slow time down a little bit. He was coaching her a lot through that. He, you know, people forget all of the actors Wes discovered. They think of him as, you know, he hated this word, but the horror meister. But, you know, Johnny Depp and Patricia Arquette and Sharon Stone and Lawrence Fishburne. And it goes on and on and on, the people that Wes found. And, uh, uh, and he was, he had, just had a great eye for talent and beauty. Uh, you know, he had a great eye for, for, for beautiful women and, and actresses too that the camera loves. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, the more I've known Heather now for many, many years and now I see, I see Brooke Shields in her older films and I see Ingrid Bergman mm. a little bit in some of her images and, and, and Wes just knew that instinctively, I think. But it, it, so Wes left me alone on part one and, uh, and on part seven, I was just having so much fun. We were, we all knew we were in a hit. And, uh, that was, it was a hard shoot, but I was having so much fun hanging out with John Saxon and getting all of his golden age stories, right, you know, yeah. Elvis stories and Bruce Lee stories and everything. And, uh, and, and I was just being a good soldier for Wes, but it was on the series Nightmare Cafe that Wes and I really, I think became, I think it's fair to say we became close. When you turned to directing, was he someone who had inspired you? Did you ever meet with him and talk about the directing process? You know, I think, and, and I, because Mick, you're, you're the real thing sitting across from me here, but I think I'm, I'm, uh, if I'm the real thing at all as a director, it's probably in the theater. Hmm. Uh, I'm, uh, I was just uh, a director for hire on all of the directing I've done. And if I was to direct something that I think I'm right for, it would be more in the world of uh, a, a low-budget Tender Mercies, the uh -huh. Robert Duvall film with just the fabulous performance by Betty Buckley, uh, uh, who is so great in Split, by the way. No mm -hmm. one she's talking about underrated. Well, the first time yeah. I ever saw you was in Buster and Billy which is very much of that ilk. Is that the kind of movie you were thinking of making uh, uh, in your early days as a... As an actor? I'm, I'm sort of characters against the landscape. I have that gift. I'm very good with art department. I'm very good with casting and, and handling actors. But, you know, I keep, they keep wanting me to do horror films and, and sometimes fantasy films, sometimes <laughs> fantasy films. Yeah. And I'm like the kid that's not good at math. I'm, I'm afraid of, the, of some of that technology, even though I've been up to my eyeballs in it, you know, for 30 years, it's still intimidating to me. I'm familiar with it. I'm familiar with the vocabulary, but it's like having that knot in your stomach when you know that day is coming or that setup's coming or that effect is coming for me. Mm -hmm. And also because I was constantly being asked to work in low budget directorial jobs, that clock never stops ticking and it just gets louder and louder the further you get into the shoot. And I don't really enjoy that. I wish I did more. And perhaps if I w had been younger, started a little younger, I could have, I used to always have it in my contract when I was doing TV pilots that I could direct second One season. Yeah, second yeah. season. And I think had any of my TV shows lasted till the <laughs> second season, I probably, that would have probably been better training for me than just to get thrown out there, you know, with the clock ticking on a, on, on a low budget horror movie 
that had practical effects that I was always nervous about, or so CGI not, that I was nervous about. So yeah. you're not dying to do 976 Evil 2? No. In fact, I turned that down. <laughs> really? Yeah. Did yeah. they make it? Yeah. Yeah, oh. they did. My, the first one's actually a successful film. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. So you, mm. you really don't have that hunger to direct anymore uh, in film? You know, I'll tell you, I have two projects I wouldn't mind trying. I have a great concept for our town done with rehearsal props and rehearsal dress and a, a stage manager who's chain smoking and contemporary and has on the Bluetooth and then it turns into the old headphones and he's wearing a work shirt that could or could not be contemporary and he dons a fedora and he starts the show. And I have this great concept for soundtrack, Pennies from Heaven, and from different time periods. And a little improv at the end where people really keep telling the audience things that you'll miss when you're dead. You know, ironed sheets, the smell of toast, things like that. Uh, reggae on the car radio that surprises you. Just wonderful things where you let, you let maybe Emily and one or two other characters go for it. So I'd love to do that. And I'd love to do Twelfth Night. I sat backstage. I stole a production of Health Night, uh, Twelfth Night playing a, one of the servants. And I got great fan letters for this way back in early in my career. But I watched it night after night backstage. It's great training as, as it, that actors can use. And I think I solved all the problems in uh -huh. that show. So I'd love to do it as a Twelfth Night, as a Christmas play, as nice. a cruel, dark, strange Christmas comedy, you know. Mm. Do you feel that you've been hamstrung by the horror genre? Just the opposite. I had a great time in the 70s, Mick. We both did, you know, <laughs> and I was everywhere. I was with the great Bob Rafelson. I was with the great Dan Petrie. You know, I worked with the great Robert Mulligan. I was, I was just, I, you know, I hanging out with Henry Fonda for eight weeks, sharing, yeah, yeah. sharing a dressing room with Henry Fonda, love scenes with Susan Sarandon. You know, I just had this great life in the seventies. And, uh, so no, everybody knew who I was by the time, you know, uh, Freddie happened. What Freddie did for me and, uh, a television job I had, uh, a series called V. Oh yeah. It made me international overnight. Hmm. So between 82, and 85, I became an international actor. And, uh, I mean, I just got back from Spain and I, I'm, I'm, I work in Europe a lot. I've worked all over the world and I love it. You know, you get to be my age and, you know, the wife loves it when she's shooting a movie in Rome or yeah. Madrid or <laughs> Barcelona or London. It's just a great gift, you know, and some of those movies are terrific. Some of them aren't, you know, I did one in 2015 called The Last Showing that I'm really proud of. Finn Jones from Iron Fist and Game of Thrones stars with me. Finn is brilliant in this film. Terrific director. It's a little bit of a De Palma homage, mm. but uh, yeah, so I, I would never have had that opportunity at my age had I not done Freddie. Freddie made me international. And, uh, and this is just this great happy accident of career that I wouldn't trade anything for. You know, uh, I, I think it's literally only cost me one job that I know and your pal, she got, got the job. Betty, Day, Betty Tom, Thomas right. got the gig. Uh, they, they, somebody at, uh, J. Arthur Rank, uh, thought I couldn't do comedy because, you know, and that's, that's all I did in the theater right. and that's all I directed in the theater. But because I, I was so full of juice as a horror icon at that moment, they didn't go with me, even though I, I helped cast, I, I helped cast that project. I got a little actress named Helen Hunt 
to, 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 I've to, heard of to her. be in it. Yeah. Heard of her? Yeah. yeah. So, but th- that's the only time, the only, the only gig I know that where, where my reputation as a horror or a genre star really hurt me. Well, the, we met. <laughs> Originally doing Freddy's Nightmares, I directed yeah. the sep- second episode, and then I did three of the wraparounds for some of the other episodes. Well, I remember you and Gil Adler. Yeah, <laughs> it was a really fun experience. But man, was that a low budget and a fast job! Well, they, we got lied to, uh, you and and myself. And I directed a couple of episodes yeah. too, but I brought my entire crew from Nightmare Four uh-huh. with, with me to that, and that's why we could get through that. We were supposed to have ten days. A 10-day schedule on each show, (laughs) and we were supposed to have 600,000. And within the first couple of shows, they went down to a, I think we went down to like a a, a five or a six-day shoot. Yeah, mine was five or six days. Yeah, and then they cut the the budget on everybody. Um, And it was even hard on me, and I was only supposed to have to work three days a week on that and uh, I felt bad but it was great because that crew went back to back Nightmare on Elm Street 4 the Rennie Harlan uh, right. R- Freddy's Revenge they went right onto the series and uh, so all those kids uh, that had worked so hard for New Line they finally got to buy a house you know, and, they fi- <laughs> and a new car yeah. and have a baby <laughs> now do you think that uh, Wes felt hamstrung by the the master of horror title I know he did Music of the Heart which was not as successful as he'd hoped, and it kind of resigned him to that world. He seemed to express to me a couple of times that he felt a little limited by that. I think Wes respects the genre a lot. He taught me to respect it. That's a really important point. He respected horror. We were never allowed to say slasher film, even though the verb, if I came at you right now across the table, Mick, it would be, I would slash at you because Freddie has the extended knife, knife claws. Right. But we were not allowed to say that word. And that's not what Wes considered those films. They're much more imaginative. They're, 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 they're a very different kind of film. They're not as nihilistic as a Friday the 13th. There's more fun and surrealism. Well, there's a story to Wes's there films. Well. But, but there's yeah. a great sense. Yeah. Of the, the dream landscape, uh, which is, it lends itself to a kind of surrealism that Wes, I think, really milked. And I think the other directors did, did too. Uh, no, I think he respected the genre. I just know he hated that word, horrormeister, because it follows you. Right. You know, it just follows you everywhere you go. I've made peace that it's going to, my obituary is going to say Freddy Krueger, the first sentence. <laughs> I know that now, and I'm fine with it. But I think it hurt Wes a little bit because Wes is a fine writer. He did such great work with the Twilight Zone reboot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole other world and was certainly could not be considered Grand Guignol or, or, or horror or, or, or gore. None of the Twilight Zones that he did. And Wes really loves that kind of edgy fantasy surrealist thing. Uh, and, and I would have, I'm surprised Wes didn't get to do, uh, maybe just a great fantasy children's film. I mm. think he would have really, uh, served that, that kind of, of concept well. But I, I don't know. I don't think he, he flogged himself about it. I think both, both Wes and Toby Hooper, uh, kind of made peace with it at, at a point and then embraced it again. 
Uh, well, it reminds me of uh, early, early on, I interviewed Christopher Lee back on my old Z Channel show. And he had so much resentment for being known as a Dracula actor. He did it, he cashed the paychecks, and he hated it. He was filled with self-loathing, and he would always talk about the Wicker Man yeah. as the pinnacle of his career or some historical drama he had done. Or the James Bond films. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. But it was never what gave him the greatest fame. And I think to be remembered as anything is an amazing honor and to become an icon. And Wes was certainly an icon is an icon in the horror field, just as a filmmaker, but as a horror filmmaker in particular. And is there a scene that maybe you'd like to rem that you remember most or best uh, after Wes's passing that comes to mind that you shared? Well, you know, I mean, I first of all, I mean, I love. You know, we're talking about about actors that uh, West discovered. I forgot Bill Pullman, yeah. Serpent in the Rainbow, which mm. is one of my favorite West Craven movies. And I'm always going to pronounce his name wrong. Zakes Mokai, I think, or Zakes Mokai. Right. Yeah. Mokai, uh, the South African actor is so brilliant. Was also in the Graham Greene comedians with Burton and Taylor. Right. Uh, and, and he's brilliant in that. And scary, scary. But so, so there's a lot of sequences in Serpent in the Rainbow that I think are, are very underrated. Uh, that that are you know. Like, like sequences in the original Chainsaw Massacre that have been borrowed by uh, very famous directors who shall remain nameless here. But, uh, you know, in terms of influential filmmaking. Uh, and so I look to, you know, Serpent and the Rainbow. And, and for me, Wes let me improvise uh, an entrance in uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, uh, part seven. And it's just that it's and I was in a different uh, a, a, a more uber Freddy makeup and I wore a jacket for the first time and I, and he had me on a little elevator and I came rising out of the bed and I just felt it needed a line and I didn't want to come up with a, a, a punchline there. I wanted it to be dark, but I also wanted it to work. And so I tried on the first take. I just said, miss me. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Wes kept it, you know, Wes liked it. And that was, you know, when I saw the movie, it was like my, I knew then that Wes really trusted me because, you know, Wes was not fond of how far we pushed the envelope by the time we got to part six. Now that's the Rachel Talalay 3D, you know, and, and Freddy's dead movie. And we did that intentionally. People must understand that that was an intentional, it was, there were sequences there that I literally, modeled myself after Bugs Bunny in a Warner Brothers cartoon, we were really pushing the envelope of popular culture because Freddie had become talk show fodder. He was in the Sunday comics. You know, he was everywhere, every action figure, uh, you know, he, he, cover of Mad Magazine. So we had to address that. And I know Wes, was his nose was always a little bent out of joint. But again, if you go back and watch A Nightmare on Elm Street 1, uh, you'll see that Freddie definitely, I mean, he cuts his fingers off and cracks wise and he mm -hmm. eviscerates Tina and he puts her face on like a mask and cracks jokes and he sticks his tongue out of a phone and tries to French kiss the girl. You know, Freddie's, you know, uh, Freddie's clowning around already. Uh, what happened, I think, in, in later films is the editors sometimes relied a little too much uh, on the joke. Or the, or the one-liner or the Freddie Wisecrack as a punctuation point to a scene. And it became kind of obvious as opposed to like maybe going sometimes with the darker take. Well, I really appreciate you sharing 
all of these insights with Wes and with yourself. And uh, well, it's been a sad week, you know, Mick. I yeah. mean, between you know, this is the anniversary of Wes's passing, and we just lost George Romero. Yeah, you know, sweet man. I'm yeah. hoping we're going to do a tribute soon to him as well because he was a very. Uh, I I, very I did a game guy. with George, and I met George at several cons and hung out with him, and just a great guy. You know, a big teddy bear. Yeah. Yeah, a really terrific guy. And amazing how insightful and intelligent and educated these filmmakers are of this generation within this genre that might surprise a lot of people. Yeah, uh, I, I think that the horror genre and the fantasy genre uh, and the, in the science fiction as well, these are, are, are opportunities for directors to really show their stuff and uh and the best rise like cream to the top and you can tell you know you see the other you see directors that flounder within the genre they they and i think they apologize for it sometimes and i don't think you you can apologize for horror i think you have to embrace it and and we're constantly redefining it i mean we i'm sure you're a fan of get out you know absolutely uh, uh, yeah uh, uh, jordan peele's uh, film yep. uh and that terrific actor he has from atlanta i can't remember his name now that that great actor but uh you know, it's always changing. And I, I, you know, oh gosh, I, I, now that we're, I've said that, I wish Wes was here to watch Get Out with you and I. Yeah, I think he'd yeah. love it. I think sure he'd love it. Yeah. He, well, he was like the best of all filmmakers, constantly evolving. He wasn't somebody who became successful and stayed in that one place and didn't grow. And that was one of the great things of my experience with Wes. And we had these Masters of Horror dinners that Wes was often a part of. And it was just, he was a really special guy, a great filmmaker, but also a really terrific guy. And, and, and you know, uh, he, he would argue with you too. I mean, I've only had one running argument with Wes over the years and Bruce Campbell. They both ganged up on me. And I think Sam Raimi did too. All three of them. It was either in, might have been Sitch's, but it might have been in it might have been uh, in uh, in Belgium too. It might have been that that, the Brussels, that Brussels yeah. festival. I can't remember. But they ganged up on me about Silence of the Lambs, and really? I don't think it was envy. I think they love you know Jonathan Demi. I don't think it was envy. I think it was just that they thought, oh, there goes the independent horror movie because it's uh -huh. this is a big studio success, and they were worried that all that financing was going to dry up or something. But I, I remember. But I mean, over the years, I got in that argument with. Wes a lot, you know. I said, "No, we have to bless that 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 a big studio can make a movie that great we, and win five yeah. Oscars." Yeah, yeah, we have to bless that. We can't just we can't be envious and we can't criticize that. And 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 Bruce Campbell was, "No, no, I'm going to open a studio in Oregon." <laughs> Bruce, it's okay. It's yeah. all right. <laughs> the independent film will not die. Yeah, especially the horror. Film. Again, well, thanks for sharing. Oh, these. thanks, Nick, for having me. Always yeah. a pleasure to converse with you, and we got to do it more often than behind microphones. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Now, more post-mortem with Mick Garris. It must have been at least 20 years ago that I met Wes Craven at a retreat for the Writers Guild out in Lake Arrowhead, where we were on a panel talking about writing horror. He was an amazing gentleman with a very discreet sense of humor, sort of dry, and we became friends uh, over a course of several Masters of Horror dinners where a group of us all got together to hang out. Wes was always a great part of those evenings. So about seven years ago, we did an interview with Wes as part of our 
FearNet post-mortem television interview show. And as a tribute to Wes, now that he's been gone for two years, I want to resurrect this interview from the TV show and present it to you now as a part of our podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is me and Wes Craven in 2010. On the slab with us is one of the most influential figures in contemporary horror, Wes Craven, a novelist, screenwriter, producer, and director. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You actually didn't see your first movie until relatively late in your life. That's true. I was a senior in college. Um, with the exception of Disney movies, I was raised in a very strict fundamentalist family, church, um, where going to movies was considered too sinful except for Disney movies. So I did see all the Disney movies. There would be maybe one a year. Or something. You sure you weren't a Mormon? <laughs> no, Baptist. But, um, yeah, and I went to a Christian college, too, where it was uh, forbidden. So I would have been expelled if I had been caught. I hitchhiked to the uh, next town and, and saw To Kill a Mockingbird. And literally that was like the epiphany for me. It was like, if this is considered sin, they got to be wrong. <laughs> so uh, that was my beginning of my exit. So um, it, was, it was there, and then I, I went on to graduate school for that year. We, we were working so hard. Uh, it was a master's degree in one year. Wow. I didn't see any movies. And then uh, when I started teaching, I was teaching in a, uh, a town where there was an art, little art house that was showing all the uh, cinema of Europe in the mid-'60s, and that was it. I just was captured. So it was a real mind-expanding experience to be there. Totally. Do you think that that religious background had uh, gave you the reason to go into the dark cinema? Well, you know, I, it, it's funny because it was such a pervasive lifestyle and the mind was manipulated so heavily by all the adults around you. Uh, there's no way that it didn't have some influence in some way. But there's lots of horror film directors that didn't have that background. So I don't know. I, I think I just have this innate sort of dark humor. Mm -hmm. And I was known much more in school and college for a sense of humor than I was for anything like horror. I had no idea that I had any future in horror and never thought about it. I, and I didn't really even gravitate towards horror films. I was much more looking at them as art films. So it took me by as much surprise as it did my friends and family, really. So how do you go from teaching humanities and English to syncing up dailies for Sean Cunningham? <laughs> well, it's a twisted path. You know, I, 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 in several times in my life, I've done things without a great deal of planning, but just following an impulse or a, or a passion. And I, in the course of teaching, I think I taught five years, I saw just about every art film and, and good film. And, and the 70s were such an amazing period Incredible. for both European and American filmmaking that I just wanted to do that. And I had no clue what kind of movies to make. And I just went to New York to learn how to do it. And beyond that, I didn't have a plan. By the way, I looked uh, for an entire summer um, because after I quit, I had three months of pay still. And uh, I didn't find a job. And I, I had to come back up to that small town in upstate New York where my wife and two kids were and say, honey, I didn't get a job. And I can't go back to the college, and I actually went to the local high school and got a job teaching uh, English for a year. And at the end of that year, it was like, are you going to stay a high school teacher, or are you going to give it one more shot? And I, I went back to New York, and, um, you know, in a period of two years, I learned how to edit a little bit, and um, 
was driving a cab, and then I got a job syncing up dailies on a small, small feature that was produced uh, by Sean Cunningham at that time. Just this guy in a little two-room office in New York. And um, by the end of the year that it took to complete that film, Sean and I had become kind of past friends. So the choice to make your first movie a horror film, Last House on the Left, was that a commercial choice? No, it wasn't even that. He had a relationship with a group of theater owners in Boston. And they occasionally would uh, commission filmmakers, you know, very low-budget filmmakers, to make them movies as their second bill. And so they came to Sean after this film that he and I had worked on together and said, we want you to make something scary for our theater chain. So Sean came to me and said, listen, the guys in Boston, he always referred to them, uh, want a scary movie? You want to write something scary? And uh, I said, no, I don't know anything about that. And he says, well, you were raised as a fundamentalist. Just pull all the, all the skeletons out of your closet and sort of laughed at me. So I literally did that. I went to a, a friend's place out in Long Island for, I think, Labor Day weekend, something like that. I sat in a room and wrote the first script in two days. Um, and and now that, this that was last off and left. And was that inspired by Bergman? Yes, it was. As people talk about it being yeah, a, a oh, version of The Virgin Spring. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I thought, well, what's a good plot? And I thought The Virgin Spring was such a remarkably concise and tight and ironic story. Uh, and I think, by the way, Bergman thought that because it was a, it was a centuries-old uh, myth uh, or part of their folklore in, in his area of the world that he borrowed it for his movie. So, uh, yeah, I borrowed the basic story outline. Um, and the sort of reverse of, you know, the straight and narrow parents, very religious father, turning to becoming quite vicious and, uh, you know, completely beyond the law and, and taking revenge. It's a pretty brutal movie. Yeah, it's quite brutal. I think I had a gut instinct, no pun intended, for... <laughs> I've never seen a movie where they, they don't cut away in violent scenes. Um, and I had been watching a lot of documentaries uh, on Vietnam especially, but I... The building I started in, 56 West 45th, was uh, Leacock Penny, Penny Baker, the makers of Monterey Pop and Don't Look Back, the Dylan film. Sure. A lot of other documentary people. So a lot of my jobs were working on those kind of films and wow. you know, hanging out with documentary filmmakers. And one of the things they spoke about with great pride was you never turn off the camera and you never look away hmm. uh, and you don't interfere. And so that was kind of the, the impulse I had for Last Houses. I'll stage these various scenes and I'll... I'll do it like it's actually happening, and I'll do it basically like a documentary. So, for instance, a big scene of the, the rape and murder in the woods, we would rehearse those scenes, and then uh, we would just do it as one long take and uh, do it three times from three different angles. It was only in, in, after we did a couple of scenes like that that I realized they were powerful, and you could start to feel that. In fact, there was one of the murders in that, which is very graphic, and, and the girl is virtually disemboweled when the killers go into a frenzy that even surprises them. Uh, we, we broke for lunch right after we finished shooting that, and I didn't want to eat, and I was sitting on the hood of one of the cars, and I looked over, and nobody else was eating either. And uh, that's when I realized this is going to be very powerful, and you're doing something you didn't even know you were doing, in a way, as far as the power of it went. I just wonder how you prepared your actors for those particularly brutal scenes. What was your process there it was just like just try to put yourself in this position and and because i think they played out over such a long period uh the scenes 
uh, it gave him a chance to get into it, really. But there was also some very interesting factors. Uh, David Hess, for instance, who played Krug, was frightening to Sandra Peabody, who had, I don't know whether she had done any film work at all. She was just a young girl, and... David stayed in character the whole time, so Sandra didn't have to act. She was <laughs> she was always she was afraid, terrified you know? of him. And there, Lucy uh, Grantham uh, had a background that, uh, let's just say, was very very tough and very street. And mm-hmm. she knew those those places. She she improvised a great line there where she said to. Uh, to Mary, uh, there's nobody here. There's just you and me. There's just you. Just look at me. Just you. and that just came out of her own life experience. You know, there was no like you have to stay in the script. Mm. And by the way, I, I had no idea what coverage was. I didn't know screen direction. I didn't know anything. So, how did you discover the language of telling a story with film? I think I th- I thought of myself. I am, um, if I were a child, a five year old child in a room. This is how I was. Looked at it, and you know the adults are talking, and somebody's getting in a fight, and you know argument, whatever it is, and or they're picking up something. Or, where would you stand to see it? Mm-hmm. And I didn't think beyond that really. I just thought, where would where would I want to be to see what you know? And I think part of it was like being a, a child in a house where uh, my parents fought and, and mm. separated and divorced, and there was a lot of kind of terrible drama. And I can remember hiding but looking, you know. And, and beyond that, I didn't. Uh, it was just uh, the idea of uh, covering it like a documentary, so handheld. Didn't never thought in terms of a, of a dolly or a crane or anything like that. And then we did this film, as much as a hoot and a lark as anything else. And suddenly, um, people were lining up around the block and getting in fistfights and having heart attacks, and it was a big scandal. And and repeating, it's only a movie, it's only a movie, it's repeating, only, it's only a, movie. a movie. And Sam Markoff heard about it and bought it and took it national, and suddenly I was a horror film director. How did that change your life? <laughs> literally, uh, you know, friends would not leave their children alone <laughs> in the same room, literally. Uh, a lot of people were very offended. Really? You know, because, I, you know, the people I hung around with the first couple of years in New York were... Uh, a lot of academics, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of very educated people. And they were quite appalled. So there was a sort of a um, being disbarred from the nice company of many people. It also changed my life in the sense that, you know, Sean, both Sean and I spent the next two and a half years uh, trying to do different kinds of movies. Saying, we made a scary movie, let's do something about, uh, you know, uh, divorcing fathers and their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a comedy on American Beauty Contest. I wrote something, uh, an adult version of Hansel and Gretel. I wrote something on Colonel Anthony Herbert, who was court-martialed uh, by the United States Army for reporting American war crimes. You know, things like that. Nothing happened with any of it. Ouch. You know? And I had another friend, Peter Locke was his name, who kept coming to me and saying, you got to do another Last House. And it was the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> I didn't want to go back to that dark place again, you know? And finally, it came to the fact that... Um, I was broke. And he says, come to, come to Vegas, we can go out in the desert. There's no, you, we don't need permits and just write something in the desert. And that's how the Hills of Eyes came about. Um, and in the interim of those years, I was just uh, cutting trailers and working for other people and very tiny little things and, and getting nowhere with being anything but a horror film director. Mm-hmm. And once you did the second one, that, then that's who you are. And the exception, the music of the heart takes 20 years to get to. 
So do you find that you were consigned to a ghetto in a way? Yeah, but a lot of great things come out of the ghetto. I mean, yeah. jazz came out of the ghetto. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? So uh, I think what you have to do at a certain point is appreciate the ghetto and say, okay, um, there's been some fantastic literature and art and, and movies done about this side of the human experience, and, and you have the ability to make a film in it. So take everything that you loved about what you were learning and teaching and just put it in there in a way that's not onerous and not uh, preachy. And that's just respecting the material and respecting the genre and saying it doesn't have to be banal, it doesn't have to be exploitive, it doesn't have to be shallow. Anything you're capable of putting into this genre, it will take it and there will be a smart audience that will see it. Do you have limits to what you would show on the screen? I absolutely do. Yeah. I, I won't show stupidity, lack of imagination, disrespect for the audience. <laughs> something that somebody else has already done better. In terms no, of, of uh, brutal know. violence, uh, you've done some of the most memorable violent scenes in horror films. I, you know, I think I have tended not to do that kind of thing uh, again and again. I think the mm -hmm. first two movies I made, certainly The Last House the most, and then Hills of Ice also. But after that, uh, got a little bit more abstract. But um, I think that it's valid to make those movies... In, in your early career. And uh, I, I don't think there's ever a reason to be uh, merciful towards your audience. <laughs> you know, I mean, they want you to grab them by the throat and, and keep them there for uh, an hour and a half or, or whatever. But you're always following your own inner guidelines. I mean, there are no rules for making these films. There's no laws among ourselves, you know, as fellow genre filmmakers, horror filmmakers. One guy will make a film that somebody else might look at and say, that's, that's really, not, that's despicable. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely, uh, I've seen. And I have a hard time watching some of our films, you know, the, the, the hostile uh, genre. Gornography or torture <laughs> porn. <laughs> torture yeah. porn. I just have a hard time with it. But I, I must say, I forced myself to see hostile, uh, and uh, I remember saying, I just don't want to watch people being tortured, but the film didn't just do that. It had some very interesting character things, yeah. some great action things. And a good director, a good storyteller will not just do that. And I think if somebody just does, does that, then, then they are doing it some sort of a violence point or whatever. And I think a good horror director is talking about, you know, the primal fears and, and, uh, if you want to be honest about talking about those things, you have to get down to the nitty gritty about fear and things people do to each other. Last House, I think, was the universality of family and protect, trying to protect your family. Hills of Eyes was, it was a middle of nowhere film. And also another family genre. film. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, all, I, many of my films are family. But uh, that, the idea, as I realized one, one day, uh, we live in the middle of nowhere. Why? That's why there's so many films about the middle of nowhere. It's like we live on this tiny little blue planet and more and more scientists are telling us now it's a trillion light years to the nearest object and we're out in the middle of nowhere you know we are out in the wilderness of space so the the naive family that gets off the main road you know goes out in the middle of what do you know what are you going to find out there do you feel like society is protecting us you take the society away from them and you get the family of the hills have eyes yeah i i, I think that there is this sort of uh social contract, if you will, uh, that we all agree not to kill each other, <laughs> you know, that it's a kind of a bad thing. Some people don't, aren't able to control that, but most of us 
realize that violence doesn't pay off uh, uh, to the group. And so we, we sit on it and we learn to control it and we become civilized. But uh, there's always those cases where it, it vanishes or you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, look at what happened in New Orleans, you know, in, in, in a couple nights. It was put back into the Stone Age in a way, you know. The whole infrastructure just stripped away and roving bands of people with guns. And it's like, it doesn't take much. Yeah, there's know, not much of a fence around us. No, the, the veneer is much thinner than we like to think. Well, with A Nightmare on Elm Street, you really touched a nerve. So where did that idea come from? I think it was a combination of a, a com, uh, hearing somebody talking about uh, having a dream that was, seemed so real that they could almost pull the person out of it, and constructing a character that was in some ways thought about very viscerally, in some ways thought about very intellectually. The intellectual part was, what, what is the, one of the earliest things I can think of as a weapon that would have terrified human beings? It would be pre-spear, pre-knife, pre-sharpened stone to the claws that nature gives to its predators. Hmm. The cave bear reaching around the corner with this massive mitt with daggers on the end of every finger, that's primal. You know, that's what we were running from for a million years or however long it was, you know. And uh, the man himself was based on a man who frightened me as a, as a, as a child, woke me from my sleep uh, one night shambling down the sidewalk uh, in Cleveland. And uh, I got out of bed to see what, what it was, and I looked and there was this guy dressed very much like I made Freddy dress like. Really? Um, I think he was just a random drunk going down the sidewalk, but he had an uncanny ability somehow to realize this little kid was looking down on him from the second story apartment window and he just stopped and then he just looked right up at me. And, like that, you know? <laughs> and I fell back and, and sat on the edge of the bed in the dark and my whole family was you know, asleep and counted to, I don't know what, uh, a thousand, you know, something that I thought would he, he certainly will go, but I haven't heard him go, but he must, he must have gone. He can't be waiting. And I went back to the window, and he was waiting. He just went like that, and then he turned, wow. and he walked down the sidewalk looking at me, and he walked around the corner, and I... That's where the entrance to our building is. <laughs> Ran to the front door to our, of our apartment, and I heard the door, the street, door to the street open, and I just... Uh, I went and pounded on my brother's door. He was 10 years older than I was. And I said, there's a guy, he's coming for me. And my brother literally went down with a baseball bat and wow. the guy ran away. But the essence of that man was that he enjoyed terrifying a child and enjoyed sort of destroying the, the comfort of innocence. So that's, that became Freddy. And then, you know, intellectual again, a mask. I want a mask. Everybody's using masks, but I want them to be able to talk. What about a scar tissue? And that led into the the fact that parents had burned him alive, and that's why he was in the other world. Even the colors were, were out of Scientific American. I read an article on the two most difficult colors for the iris or the retina to see next to each other were those two colors. So, really? Yeah, so it was just, you know, it was, a, it was kind of just a smart, smart hodgepodge of, of stuff, and then finding an actor who was brilliant and who could bring it to life. And one of the key things about his appearance is that makeup, despite all the applications of prosthetics and the like, you see Robert Englund beneath it. Mm -hmm. And it's not Jason Voorhees. It's not Michael Myers. It's a mask of scar tissue, but this is a human face. Yes, and it's a cogent, articulate, devious, clever, resourceful villain. It's not like just supernatural that he shows up someplace. Freddy figured it out, you know, and he kind of knew where you slept and 
That kind of villain, I think, is always more frightening than that. Someone who's just really, really smart. Well, dreams and nightmares are so potent anyway. I mean, uh, they are our original movies. So the yeah. first movies we see are our dreams, right? Yes. I, I think it was one of the most uh, universal films I've made. What must it have felt like? What did it feel like to walk into a, a Halloween shop and see Freddy gloves and masks and hats and all of that? Not only would you see it in shops, would you on Halloween you see little kids walking around in Freddy costumes. It was really quite, quite remarkable. Yeah, it's a strange feeling. I mean, you know, he sort of, look, you know, on those dark nights when you think, I just don't have it, and I, you know, I'm a fake or whatever. So, no, well, I created something that's known around the world. That's not bad. And then the next Halloween success story, <laughs> The Scream Face. I mean, you did Scream, and it changed the course of horror films once again. They became self-reflective and, and self-referential and usually not nearly as intelligently uh, as you did. Right off the bat, let's credit Kevin Williams, and that was his script. Great script. And it was a fantastic script. Very, Originally called very, very Scary clever. Movie, right? Yes, very funny. And we thought uh, when they when Bob Weinstein wanted to call it Scream, we thought well, that's a stupid title. I'll never <laughs> never do well with that. But uh, it was kind of like when I made New Nightmare and thought of the idea of doing a, a film about those who had made the film and uh, of Freddie because no more stories were being told about him somehow being freed mm -hmm. to actually prey on us in in real life. That seemed like a breakthrough, and you were kind of talking about a film while you're making the film, right? And Scream just took it to the next step, and I felt like, wow, this is great. And, and Kevin was smart enough to make it not about the filmmakers and the actors, but about the audience, you know, much more appealing. Yeah. So, and I thought he did it so cleverly, and it was a mystery that, you, you know, the audience couldn't figure out, the fact that there were two killers, and I just found I could pour myself into it really nicely, and I think I brought a certain amount to it, too, and, you know, um, it, it was a great marriage of a, of a really, really gifted writer and a director, I think, at the top of his game. Your characters are often very believable, very real-world contemporary young people. Why do you think you connect so well with an adolescent or a young audience? Probably because I never grew up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the horror audience is great because, you know, they have the, the expendable income to, to spend on movies and they have the time and they don't have to pay for babysitters. And so they, they are, you know, given the economics of, of films increasingly, they're the ones that are more likely to be in theaters. But, you know, there's something about a teenager that is quite profound because they are on that, they're on that tipping point between childhood and adulthood. And they're going through those, all those huge changes of, I'm not a child, I'm an adult, but, oh my God, look at this adult world. It's totally screwed up and it's dangerous. And, and my parents are like, they're more like children because they don't mm -hmm. get it. And there's sex to deal with. And, uh, you know, what am I going to do for a career while I find the one of my, the love of my life? I mean, there's, tremendously profound things going on during the teen years. So they are kind of like a, a boiled down version of, of the human journey. And I think if you understand the journey, then you understand teenagers and you can write about them. Do you think becoming a father uh, changed your perspective as, a, as an artist or filmmaker? Well, I, yeah, I think um, having kids keeps you... I mean, everybody says keeps you young, but it actually wears you down to a nub. But, you know, it... it you're around their culture, and so you you're in on their conversations. You're in on their music. They're, you're you're privy to all of that over the spectrum of you know from the time they're kids to the, well through the teens at least. So that helps a lot. You know, you're not removed from it. I think if you were a childless uh, writer, you, you'd have to work harder to 
to, to figure out that culture in a way because it's, it's not brought into your home on a daily basis. So I think that did help. I think it's important to listen to kids, you know. Um, Marilyn Manson was once asked, oh, if you had a chance to speak to a, to a typical kid of your audience, what, what would you tell them? And he said, I wouldn't tell them anything. I'd ask them what they wanted to tell me. And that's, that's the brilliant way of looking at it is, you know, just learn from them and, and keep your ideas young and just, you have to work at, at not staying young. I mean, you're going to get old, you're going to get wrinkled, you're going to get frail, whatever, but young in the sense of continually reappraising your ideas of what's what and, and staying open to the world as it develops because it's an ongoing and quickly changing, as you know, thing. And if you just kind of sit back and rest on your laurels or, or what you learned when you were 20, you'll become obsolete. And so that's one thing I've, I've never tried to learn the lingo of kids or anything like that. But I've tried to stay open to the world as much as I can. And I think that that makes a difference. Here at Podcast One, we love hearing from you. We read every tweet and comment you send our way. So don't miss your chance to take our summer listener survey. Just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner or go to podcastone.com slash my survey. It only takes a few minutes and it gives you the opportunity to make a direct impact on your favorite shows. Tell us how you really feel so we can get to know you better. We value your thoughts and participation. So check out the survey at podcastone.com slash my survey or click on the survey banner on podcastone.com podcast one has a brand new app for you to discover the show find out everything about your favorite podcast one shows including postmortem with mick garris through the all-new podcast one app available now in the app store or on google play find links to articles social media make playlists with your favorite episodes and connect with other fans of the show you can even create your own polls to debate your favorite horror films we have our own little community on there check out exclusive content such as behind the scenes photos and so much more and if you have 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality there's over a thousand videos on the app right now it's like you're in the studio there is no other podcast app like this download the all-new podcast one app in the app store or on google play you're listening to postmortem with mick garris what do you think it is about the 70s that was so creatively explosive and gave birth to so many unique filmmakers like yourself steven spielberg george lucas toby hooper john carpenter I don't know. I think it just everything was up for grabs in the society. I think the Vietnam War was deeply, deeply divisive. It was deeply disturbing. We were seeing much more of the violence of, uh, of the clashing of cultures than ever before. I mean, it was coming in literally, you know, in 60 millimeter canisters from the front and going right onto television or right into documentaries. And there was a great distrust of government, which in a sense leads to a great amount of freedom because you say, screw the laws made by corrupt people, and so what might I do if I wasn't following any yeah. laws, you know? I mean, in that period when I went to New York, I mean, I just, you know, the ex-fundamentalists completely left any sort of uh, basic rules of conduct behind except my own personal rules of conduct, of, you know, honesty or hard work or whatever. But Were you thumbing your nose at your past? I don't, you know, was I, I didn't even, I didn't even give my past that, that sort of... Uh, Respect, in a way. you know, <laughs> okay. it was like I, I yeah. wouldn't waste time thumbing my nose, but I did walk away from everything. Uh, you know, grew my hair long and took lots of drugs and lived in communal situations and and met all sorts of incredible people because New York was just 
awash with all. I mean, Woodstock happened while I was there. You know, it's just the whole society was just turning over in this remarkable way, and and there was a, a great amount of optimism and uh, let's just reinvent ourselves. Some of which worked out, some of which uh, didn't. Music and film both seem to have had that kind of creative explosion at the same time. And with film, it was also the fact that there was equipment that you could carry around and you could shoot movies in 16 and get them distributed in theaters and the like. Yeah, and and, you know, the filmmakers were very, they were very literate. I mean, the European filmmakers were immersed in art of, of all sorts. So they brought that to their films. And I think the American filmmakers at the time also did a lot more reading um, and we were a lot more informed about more things than is the case now. I, I hate to be the old, you know, old part talking about the young young kids, but I always urge uh, students to go read novels, you know, read history, travel, you know, don't just look at horror films. I mean, because you'll you'll stunt yourself. Well, what you said about coming out of a broken home like that, I I came out of a family of divorce as well and so many filmmakers and fans in the genre seem to have come out of that do you think that's where you maybe seek respite i've had people ask ask me a lot especially people that don't like horror why would anybody pay to go into a film into a theater to be scared and i say they don't go to a, a theater to to have fear put into them they go into a theater to have fear taken out and the way that works i think and and this is the your humanities teacher who taught Greek mythology and, you know, read fairly deeply and all of that, is that we, life is scary. And it's, you know, it's, um, life pay, plays for keep and you end up dying at the end. Mm-hmm. And along the way, there are lots of things that can kill you. And um, that causes a great amount of anxiety. And we kind of sit on it and mask it and everything else. But we need to deal with it in some way. And there's a couple ways to do that. One, one is sports where you basically have two clashing teams and kill them. (laughs) And the other is is a movie where you take a character, the hero, heroine, and you put them into the darkest, most dangerous, awful places you can imagine. And I even think that the characters around a hero or heroine are elements of sort of an uber personality. And in this sense, it's like a folktale that says, okay... The part of you that's going to have sex when something really dangerous is around, that part is going to be killed off. The part that wants to eat or sleep or watch television or whatever, you're kind of going with the audience and saying, you know, this is is the part that's not going to work for you. What you need to do is you need to face the reality, even though it's painful. Nancy and Nightmare on Elm Street, everybody wanted to deny that Freddy existed. She was the one person that saw him, knew he was real, and dealt with it. And that, I think, is a very positive... um, message and story and it's one that goes all the way back to Odysseus and, and many of the stories of David and Goliath I mean you know he's facing a monster come on you know it's horror movies that are throughout the Bible so it's like I, I'm always amazed actually people react to them so negatively uh, or so many people do well they're exorcisms you know they're playing exactly. tag with our fears safely yeah and, and when you go into a theater like that it's like you might as well be sitting around the fire a hundred thousand years ago with the shaman telling you a story and everybody's leaning forward, and there you are in the theater, and the fire's the screen, and the light and is in your eyes, and, and you're watching uh, what the shaman tells you is, is a significant story, and you have to tell a story that people recognize. You can't tell a story just about something fantastical. It has to be something they say, oh, my God, that's me. Right. And, and they get scared, but they get scared altogether. And someplace in their mind, they know it's, 
it's all imaginary. So it's a safe place to be terrified and have literally the shit scared out of you. We often are forced to be defensive about this genre that, in which we work. Um, do you have to, do you feel that you're on the defensive a lot? Not anymore. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's been remarkable because I've been doing it for, I think this, I'm starting my 41st year wow. <laughs> in the genre. Wow. I, I came to New York, I think, in 69, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it used to be that anybody at the level of a studio looked to you like they were certain. You could see it behind their eyes. This guy goes home and he kills cats. <laughs> or he chains up people in his basement or something. You know, they're literally... Or if they come to your home, they look, oh, I expected... Uh, what, a guillotine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Uh, it went from there to the point where now um, the heads of studios are people that I talk to as fans, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So the taste for it and the appreciation of it has, I think, broadened a, a great deal. And now fans have grown up to be writers and, and uh, teachers and everything else. So it's more, much more acceptable and appreciated, I think, um, than it ever was. Most of the people in the genre, the filmmakers, the novelists and the like, are some of the sweetest, most mild-mannered and gentle people I know. And I wonder if it's, that, if it's because that we get it out. I think there's a real part of that. Uh, you know, I think we all have violence in us. And you have to be honest about it, is that we all have the capacity for horror. We all think, I'd like to kill her, or whatever it is, you know, or road rage, or, you know, take a dozen American kids and put them in a training camp for uh, 12 weeks and they'll go out and, you know, shoot, it, shoot to kill. You know, if they're told there's a good reason for it. So we have to confront that. And I think a lot of the people that think horror films are evil and that horror film directors are, are evil and dangerous and whatever are people that do not recognize that or will not admit to that in themselves and so have to push it towards people outside of themselves so they can then look down on and feel safe about their, what's inside themselves. And I think that's, those are the dangerous people, really. Those are the people that can snap and, you know, climb the tower with a rifle. It's the ones who don't get it out. Don't get it out, you know. And, and it is yeah. sort of a dark humor to a lot of it. I, I, I feel that it, there's a sisterhood between comedy and horror, you know. They're very, very close. And the, the matter of timing and, and the unexpected hit and talking about uncomfortable subjects, uh, the thing that you just don't want mentioned. Chris Rock does it on stage, and we do it in a the theater. Uh, so that's part and parcel of the human experience is, is laughing past, whistling past the graveyard, making jokes about the most uh, disgusting or the most awful things and, and making movies about them too. Well, you are known for being a horror guy. The people who know you know what a sense of humor you have, but you'd not really been able to fully explore that until Eddie Murphy came to you with a vampire movie. <laughs> so A Vampire in Brooklyn, how did that come about and what was the experience like? Uh, at, at the time, Eddie Murphy and I had the same agent, Andre Eastman, in New York, and uh, she put us together. And he was a big fan of The Hills of Eyes. In fact, the first time I met him in his office, he uh, came down and out of his suite, and there was a grand piano in, in the sort of entryway there. He sat down and played this beautiful thing, like a jazz pianist. Like, And then he turned around and said, Baby fat, you fat. Fat and juicy. <laughs> Did the hills of eyes perfect. <laughs> so that's my favorite scene in your movie. 
So uh, he wanted to do a scary movie. Um, the tough part was that he didn't want to be funny at all. He wanted to play it totally straight. Really? So uh, I couldn't get the humor into it that I wanted to get into it, but uh, it was a very interesting experience, and the guy's so so gifted um, that he you know could play three characters and without a sweat. It was quite remarkable. So many of your projects have been sequelized and remade. Why do you think the genre is so reliant on sequels and remakes right now? Well, look, I, you know, the economics of the film business right now are horrible. I think for everybody, even the people that, you know, we, we always suspect as filmmakers are pocketing all the money. They're fighting all sorts of things that are very, very difficult to deal with. Piracy, for one, one thing. A generation that thinks it's their right to copy anything and use it uh, for another thing. Uh, a, a proliferation of uh, ways to see films, right down to Redbox, where you can just go to a vending machine and get a film for a buck. Yeah, know? scary. Very tough to make a dollar. People don't realize that, you know, you make a film for $10 million and that's cheap, but you have to make prints and advertising that'll cost 20 or $30 million. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, it's hard for everybody in these days to, to make a buck in the, in the film business. So a studio is going to pursue what they see as their easiest path? Why not? You know, yeah. I think if I were in your studio, I would make remakes too. I would try to make original films also, but you know, you have to make the ones that keep the lights on too. And that's been going on in Hollywood since day one. In fact, the old westerns and horror films were the safe films of, of the day because you know they had a certain audience for it. Here we have access to more media than we've ever had, and it seems like it's used less than it's ever been used. Certainly, in well, terms most of it is just self-gratifying uses of media. I mean, that's what's sold to us, you know. Uh, everything is kind of fun and playful and indulge yourself, and, you know. So I find there's a really a, an attention span problem. You know, it's difficult to get into depth in something if you can't hold a thought for more than a minute or, or you've been raised on input, input that's three seconds long, two seconds long. Sometimes that's in the film discount how many seconds is each cut, and sometimes you don't get up to three. Do you think that comes out of the music video generation? It, it, it might well, maybe, uh, you know, just the barrage of all different inputs and, and commercials, you know, having to grab your attention in a very quick time. Well, one of the things about your films is it's not just about the jumps. It's both anticipated and unanticipated. You have to kind of walk that line of meeting expectations of the audience and exceeding them and taking them in unexpected areas. Well, that's what they're paying their money for. You know, they don't want to see you warmed over something else. Right. And I often tell young writers, um, ask yourself two questions. Have you seen it before? If you have, you know, don't write it. <laughs> it's been mm -hmm. done. You know, because half the writers, and I, I'm sure you know this too, they come to you and say, well, it's sort of like Scream meets, uh, you know, Halloween. Yeah. Don't even bother. You know? <laughs> We've uh, been there. It's so on the you, double if bill. You can tell yourself, I haven't seen it before. And then maybe that's, it, you haven't seen it because it's such a stupid idea. So you have to ask yourself the second question. Would I go see it? Would I go out of my way to go see it? It's respecting the, the audience enough to say, if I'm going to ask them for money, I'm going to have to give them something new. And, and that sometimes is hard more at the studio level than at the audience level. Well, because it's counteractive to what they want. They want yeah. to feed the familiar because they know how to sell the familiar. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. why Nightmare on Elm Street script went around town for three years before it found backing. Does it fill you with glee when you're in a theater and scaring the shit out of an audience? It's not, it, well, I feel like I'm really doing my job. There is, there is certainly a satisfaction in it because, well, part of it is a, a kind of a t contest of, um, of brains, you know. Um, you have to talk about what's relevant, but you also have to surprise them. You have to do it in a way that they can't predict. 
And so there's kind of a, uh, a contest of minds there. Mm-hmm. And the horror audience, as you know, is, is very canny, very smart, and they've seen a lot of horror. So to make them jump, you really have to be on your game, right. you know, and you really have to respect your audience. You have to know these kids are damn smart, you know. The wonderful thing about the Scream series was that Kevin Williamson, who you know, created that first script, said, yeah, I've seen all the movies too, and let's talk about them, but this is not like that, you know. So I don't feel like I want to scare my audience in a bad way. I love my audience. I think they're really smart and, and wonderful, gentle people, by the way. There's many tattoos and piercings and everything. <laughs> Half of them have. They're really gentle souls. You know, I've, as you have, I'm sure, stood in the back of many, many uh, theaters when audiences are leaving after seeing one of your films. And the typical reaction is people are laughing. Mm-hmm. And their cheeks are all rosy. And if they see you and recognize you, they say, thanks, that was scary as hell. Well, Music of the Heart was a total change of pace as far as the audience was concerned. Was that something they came to you or you lobbied to get? It was a, a kind of a, a carrot uh, on the part of uh, Bob uh, and, and Harvey Weinstein. They were there at the night of the uh, te- first test screening of, uh, of Scream. And the film went through the roof uh, on the test scores. We never tested it again. And so we all congratulated ourselves, and Bob and Harvey muscled everybody out of the way. We want to do a three-picture deal with you. Scream two, scream three, and then we'll give you one for you. Anything we own. And so I went through all those things, and uh, there was they owned the rights to this documentary, uh, Small Wonders, which was about Roberta Savaris, you know, a violin teacher who taught in Harlem, and it just, it appealed to so many things. I had been a teacher. I had been divorced. I had lived in New York and loved New York. I loved all sorts of music, including classical music. And uh, it was a great story. And I thought I could get a, uh, an actress that would be really top-notch. Too bad you had to settle for Meryl Streep, huh? Academy nomination for her, so. Nice. Yeah. From a horror guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You've had tremendous success, particularly in the horror genre, uh, over and over again. How do you feel about that label of being considered a horror director? You know, it, it, it's a blessing and it's a curse. I mean, um, I had to have a long, a, a very erudite conversation with Meryl before she would consider you know, doing it. Um, and, you know, it's funny, on the set the first day I met her, she says, you know, my daughter, we, uh, we live in Connecticut at a house down at the end of this long road in the middle of the woods. Uh-oh. And my daughters watched Scream on our television set, and they were terrified to sleep in the house after that. <laughs> so I got busted by her right away. And we had a very difficult time uh, getting an audience into a theater on my name. In fact, we moved towards downplaying my name a lot on Music of the Heart. You can realize as the filmmaker that it's difficult for a studio to sell a Music of the Heart with your name on it because the more famous you are for you know, making kind of outrageous scary films, the more the crossover audience will say, I don't think so. Well, even beyond uh, when you were making Music of the Heart, how do you feel a- a- about the generalization of, of being put into that category? I come from a blue-collar family, and I'm just glad for the work, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's an extraordinary opportunity and gift to be able to make films in general. To have done it for almost 40 years now is remarkable. Uh, I don't know what else I would do at this point to earn a living. And I've met all sorts of extraordinary people and been extraordinary places. And, you know, if, if I have to do the rest of my films in the genre, I, 
no problem, no problem. I'll take every opportunity to get out. <laughs> but um, if I'm going to be a caged bird, I'll sing the best song I can. If people think you do something well, that's a terrific compliment. No, it is. It is. And, and I can see that I give my audience to something. You know, I can see it in their eyes and they say thank you a lot. So you realize you're doing something that means something to people. So shut up and get back to work. I'm going to thank you for it. Okay. Thanks, Wes. So that's our tribute to uh, a really unique and wonderful filmmaker. Uh, again, we lost him two years ago today, and all of us miss him. You can actually watch the original video that we did a few years ago that you just heard on the MickGarrisInterviews.com website, where you can see lots of the television interviews that we did for Postmortem six or seven years ago, as well as 30-year-old interviews from my old Z Channel show, The Fantasy Film Festival. Interviews with people like Steven Spielberg, John Carpenter, William Friedkin, Robert Englund, Rick Baker, everyone for the genre fan. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 